Welcome back to Reading Through the New Testament. This is Pastor Spencer. Thank you for joining us. This is week 28, week 28, July 10th through 16th. Thank you for joining us uh, today as we are continuing reading through the New Testament together as a church. Um, we're going to be reading this week 1 Corinthians chapter 3 through chapter 7. So 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. We're now in the middle of Corinthians. Last week we finished up Romans. This week we are, and we introduced Corinthians, and now we are in the middle of the book uh, to the Corinthians, this letter to the Corinthians. Remember, Paul wrote this letter uh, from Ephesus. He's writing to the church at Corinth, and he's responding not only to rumors and reports, right? That's kind of the chapter one all the way through chapter six, these reports, these rumors he's hearing about the church and what's going on in Corinth. But he's also going to respond to a letter uh, that comes to him, and he's going to respond to their concerns as well, beginning in chapter seven through the very beginning of chapter 16 before concluding uh, this letter to the Corinthians. This letter is so important and helpful because it shows how Paul was addressing a church that was living in a a very uh, ungodly, uh, pagan, unbelieving, uh, immoral culture. And so it's helpful for us to see uh, what practical real-life issues these Christians, this group of people who are in Christ, how they're tackling these issues or not tackling them, and how they should live, and how the gospel changes the way they live. That's kind of one of the things that the Corinthian letters do, is they give us some some insights into the lives, the concerns, the problems um, of the early church. And it's a kind of comforting, actually, whenever you read the problems this early church was having, um, you realize that we can, God has, nothing takes God's by surprise. Uh, these were the same things going on back then that we have going on today. And, um, and we simply have to, to remember that the gospel is sufficient. Jesus Christ is sufficient and able and powerful to meet all the needs and the problems that we may see in our church life. So today we're going to begin um, going in through this book, through uh, 1 Corinthians, right? So in 1 Corinthians, we're kind of in this section, The most of it today, we're going to still be in this time where Paul is concerning with, uh, he's re- responding to reports, right? The church is divided. Um, we see that at the very beginning. They are uh, kind of judging uh, Christian, faithful Christian pastors and leaders like Apollos and Paul and Peter, and they're forming into groups, into divisions, and uh, seeing, you know, kind of like one group's following these guys, another group's following those guys, and uh, Paul is, is now addressing them. Last week, he began saying, listen, the main thing isn't the men that you came through whom you believed it. It's, it's Christ, his gospel, his, and, and all of these things come to us through the Spirit. This week, beginning in chapter 3, he's going to start saying, he's going to say things like this, right? Um, when one says, I follow a Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Paul's point here is this, it doesn't matter in a sense, the minister, that he's simply the messenger. The real thing is that God has revealed to you by the Spirit's power this truth about who Jesus is, and you believed. The minister, the person that God uses is really insignificant 
compared to the message and the Holy Spirit and the Christ and God who sends this message. So he's saying, don't get hung up on following human leaders. That's the way the world works. That's the way the world does. They divide up based upon parties and and uh, personalities and uh, and whoever has the you know back then you know if they had social media they would be like who has the most followers who has the most uh, clicks on these uh, on the on the videos you know because Apollos probably would have had a lot of clicks on his on his videos Paul probably would have had a lot of clicks and people would have been trying to divide all over the place on on who to follow and there would have been different groups and Paul saying no 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 the key thing is Christ is Christ preached if Christ is preached the human minister is relatively insignificant it doesn't matter whoever it is praise God that that happened but it's God who gives the growth the growth and the power of the gospel come from God. So Paul is going to deal with here in, in um, chapters 3 and 4 with the, the idea of helping them to understand really what is the ministry all about, the ministry of the word. What is this whole thing about? And trying to remind them of you know, we are simply stewards. That's what he says at the beginning of chapter 4. We are stewards. We are God's messenger boys. We're, we're Christ's errand boys. We, we, in other words, he's saying we, we don't have any authority in ourselves. We're simply bringing the message of Christ to you. Then beginning in chapter 5, Paul is going to deal with immorality in the church. We, we hear about some, some really egregious um, immorality that's going on in the church, and Paul is reminding them that they must not allow that in their midst. He calls them to purge the leaven from the midst uh, because he says Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed. He uses an, a, a, a kind of an analogy um, from the Old Testament. It says, listen, we must not have these things. If we are in Christ now, we must get rid of sin, and we must not tolerate this blatant immorality in our midst. You must deal with this uh, in, in your midst as well. And so then he also deals with another problem in chapter 6, right? These guys are also not only tolerating immorality in the church, they're also suing each other. There's some level of this going on as well. They're having grievances against each other, and they're taking each other to court, and this obviously destroys the church's witness. It undermines the unity that we are supposed to have in Jesus Christ and the unity that really is there because of what Christ has done. And Paul is calling them to humble themselves. What really seems to be going on here at Corinth, and I think I'm stealing this from Luther's uh, one time, he said, we really have a bunch of know-it-alls in the church at Corinth. And that's really true, isn't it? This is a church of know-it-alls. They think they all know it all, so they, they'll engage in sexual immorality, or they will sue each other, or they will be prideful and follow one teacher over another, because ultimately, these people are a bunch, they have, one of the, one of the I shouldn't say these people, much of the problem with many people in this church, probably not everybody, there were, you know, they were believers, there were, you know, there, were, there were mature people here too, I'm sure, but what is really coming out here, though, is there's a number of people here who are think they know everything and Paul is calling them back to humility and that if they really knew everything, they would be more loving and gracious and kind and humble and lowly and patient with each other. That's where Paul eventually will get into chapter 13. He'll remind them of love. 
and such in here. And this is something they've forgotten. And Paul's calling them to remind them of who they are in Christ. They were bought with a price. They were washed. And then the second half of the letter begins in chapter 7. So now this is where Paul is going to begin dealing with the matters that he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote right? That's beginning in chapter 7, verse 1. So now he's going to deal with some of the problems, or maybe not problems, issues that they have questions about. How should we deal with this, Paul? What should what, What is the Christian way to think about this? What should we do now that we are in Christ? And he's going to deal with the whole concern over marriage, you know, and you think about it, it was a real concern. Um, if I'm in Christ, is it appropriate for me to be married to an unbeliever? Is it appropriate? Do I need to divorce my unbelieving spouse, if even if they're willing to live with me and allow me to practice my faith? Should I divorce them? Um, am I somehow tainted by uh, being married to an unbelieving spouse and while at the same time professing to believe in the gospel of Christ? Those were real questions and real concerns. Um, that they were having it. And then you think about the concern, well, what about my children then? Are they tainted because of an unbelieving spouse in me? You know, that, that, that is, that is, uh, that's in this marriage. And Paul's con- Paul is going to deal with that and helpfully guide them and to show them how the gospel works here and how its impacts. Um, and he calls them to get married if they have, if they, um, if they're, you know, most people, the normal thing for most of us is to be married um, and now there is the occasional person like Paul himself seems to be who did not have a wife. And there are those who are called to that as well. But we're, uh, he also talks about the broader idea of calling and God placing us in our specific places in life at certain times. And so he's going to give directions about marriage and all of that very helpful stuff and very important stuff for this church here in Corinth. So let's kind of dive in a little bit, think something about these verses and what we're reading here. The first verse uh, verse thing I want to read, I'm reading again from John Calvin, his commentaries. Uh, he's got a commentary on the whole of the first uh, Corinthians, and uh, it's it's really good stuff. So I'm going to read from First uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, this uh, verse here where Paul says this. Do, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Paul here is reminding them, do you not know these things? Think of, by the way, how often Paul will say that kind of thing. Do you not know this? Do you not know that you are God's temple? What does that mean? Let's uh, listen to what Calvin has to say on this verse here. He says, after giving advice to the teachers about their task, Paul now turns to the pupils, the students, so that they too might take heed to themselves. He had said to the teachers, you are the master builders of God's house. Now he says to the people, you are the temples of God. It is your responsibility to take care that you are not defiled in any way. Now, what he has in mind is that they do not give themselves dishonorably into men's hands. Indeed, he confers a rare honor on them in speaking in this way, but he does it in order to show their guilt more clearly. For since God has consecrated them as a temple for himself, at the same time he has appointed them as keepers of his temple. They are therefore violating a sacred trust in abandoning themselves to men. He calls all of them together the one temple of God. For every single believer is a living stone for the erecting of God's building. However, individuals also are sometimes called temples. 
A little later, Paul uses the same idea again, but for another purpose. In that passage, he is dealing with chastity, but here he is urging them to maintain to their last their faith in the obedience of Christ and Christ alone. The use of the question gives greater emphasis, for in calling upon them as witnesses, he is suggesting that he is speaking to them about something of which they were well aware. So he's saying, do you not know that you guys are the temple of God, right? You together are the temple. And that means also you're the keepers of the temple. You are to be those who have a sacred trust. You're to make sure um, that you are, your lives and your unity as a church and as, a, as, as those who are in Christ is to be marked by holiness, godliness in life and living. And then he says here, and he also on the second part where it says here, and that God's spirit dwells in you. He says this, this is the reason why they are the temple of God. And that's very important. You and I are the temple of God because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. It's not because we're the temple of God that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. It's the spirit who makes us holy. It's the Holy Spirit who comes to us and changes us and lives within us and makes us holy. He says, therefore, the and should be read as because. That is common enough as, for example, when the poet says, you have heard it and it has been reported. Paul says, you are the temples because he dwells in you by his spirit. For no unclean place can be God's dwelling place. In this passage, we have clear evidence for affirming the divinity of the Holy Spirit. Now, by that, he's, of course, talking about the fact that we have clear evidence in this verse right here as well to prove the fact that the Holy Spirit is God. He is a person of God. Remember, we are Christians. We are Trinitarians. We believe that there is one God. God is one being in three persons. And sometimes... People might talk about the Holy Spirit as if he's a force or some kind of like electricity or some powerful um, natural force occurring in nature or something. But what, what here Paul is affirming is that it is because the Spirit of God dwells in you that God dwells in you, right? So if God dwells in you and it's the Spirit who dwells in you, well, then that means the Spirit is God. So he's, he's pointing that out. This is a clear verse right here showing that the Spirit as well is to be worshipped as God. He is God, the Holy Spirit. And he says this, For if he were were a created being or simply something given to us, he could not by indwelling us make us the temples of God. At the same time, we understand how God communicates himself to us and the chain by which we are bound to him is pouring into us the power of his Holy Spirit. So right there, Paul is reminding you and me that because we have the Spirit of God, remember last time we talked about how we have the Spirit of God who comes and takes the things of Christ, reveals them to us, right? We have the, talked about the Holy Spirit. He, he, he reveals God's mind. He gets us into God's head so that we can understand that. Well, similarly, when the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we become temples of the Holy Spirit, but we are also the temple together of the Holy Spirit. We are together as a corporate reality. In other words, there's a sense in which you yourself as an individual are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but there's also the level in which we together as the church are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So, Spirit dwells in us, and therefore we are to live in light of that. We are to live our lives knowing that we are the temples of the Holy Spirit, and our lives should be marked by holiness and godliness and a changed life. Okay, so then I want to turn now to 
First uh, Corinthians chapter four, verse uh, seven. So Paul is continuing here. He is continuing to talk about the ministry, and he's saying, "Listen, um, none, you know, Apollos and Paul and Cephas." It really doesn't matter. The main thing is Christ and his gospel and the Holy Spirit's work. And he says, opens up chapter four and says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. This is what we are. We are simply stewards, servants. We, we just bring to you, we hand over what God has given to us. And he calls them before the judgment seat and says, you know, listen, I'm not going to be judged by you and such. And then later on, though, he says this um, in, in verse seven, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So he's, he's here highlighting the fact about because right there, their, their tendency is to be puffed up. As Paul says in the verse where preceding this, to be puffed up. Remember, there are a bunch of know-it-alls, or many of them are, and they're puffed up in their knowledge against one another. They are uh, conceited in their own minds. They think they know more than they really do. And Paul here is saying this, who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? So Paul's trying to recall them back to humility and to truth and to kind of bring them down, bring them down to planet Earth here about some of these things. Here, um, Calvin says this about verse 7. The meaning is, whoever the man is who is eager for prominence and disturbs the church with his ambition, let him come out into the open. I shall ask him who puts him before other people. In other words, who has given him this right of being taken out of the rank that others have and of being superior to others. So what he's saying here is this. Calvin's saying, listen, he's, he's looking for those per- people that think that they are superior to everyone else. Or maybe, you know, sometimes there are people who think they have superior insight, not because the text says it, but they think they're smarter or sometimes they've gotten a better insight. And the ten- or, or maybe they're, they think they're holier or more pious or or um, more mature spiritually, but sometimes what that can actually be is we're not sometimes the best judges of ourselves, and we can sometimes be arrogant. These people were, that's what they were struggling with. So Paul here is trying to remind them and calling them back to humility. Uh, Calvin continues, Now this whole argument depends on the arrangement which the Lord has established in his church, that members of the body of Christ should cohere together, and that each one of them should be content with his own place, his own rank, his own function, and the honor he himself is given. If one member wants to give up his place to jump into another's place and take possession of his office, what will be the fate of the whole body? Let us therefore realize that the Lord has placed us together in the church, and he has allotted to each his station in such a way that under one head, we may help each other. Let us also realize that we have been given so many differing gifts that we may serve the Lord unassumingly and humbly and apply ourselves to advance the glory of him who has bestowed on us everything we have. Therefore, the best method of correcting the ambition of those who wanted to be superior was to call them back to God so that they might know that not one of them had a say as to whether he was put in a high or a humble position, for God alone does that. 
They should also know that God does not grant so much to anyone that he is promoted to the place of the head, but he distributes his gifts in such a way that he alone receives the glory in everything. So Calvin here is bringing back to us that image of the body of Christ. And every body has certain members, right? Hands, feet, eyes, nose, um, on and on. And what Calvin here is saying is, is, is what Paul is kind of pointing out here is, listen, everyone needs to stay in their own place. You need to be responsible for where the Lord has already placed you. As Calvin calls that, your own place, your own rank, your own function, and the honor that God has given to you where you're at right now. And the danger is, is that everybody is discontent with where they are in the place, right? So sometimes, well, so let's look at this, right? Sometimes if we're in a church life, we might be jealous of that person over there because they get to, to, you know, they, they do this or that, or they teach this, or they get to do that job in the church, or maybe um, if you, you look at the pastors and you may be jealous of them sometimes and think, I could do a better job. Or maybe if you're a pastor and you're looking at other churches or other pastors and then you get jealous of their positions and their what you think is success. The temptation is, is for us all to be discontent with where the Lord has placed us. To be discontent and therefore to be jealous and to want to be in a different place. And Calvin there is, is reminding us that, that each of us, and that's what Paul is trying to remind them, listen, each of us needs to humbly accept the place the Lord has given us to serve him. And it's the Lord who puts us. And as Calvin points out as well, um, is, is that none of us get to be the head. Jesus alone is the head. None of us will be promoted uh, to the head, and he alone gets the glory. So uh, if Christ alone gets all the glory, then we should be content with whatever part we get to play in the body of Christ. Calvin continues, to make to differ, which is taken from that that verse. Um, Who sees anything different than you? Uh, What do you have that you did not receive? Uh, So continuing back here with Calvin, to make to differ is taken here to mean to make outstanding. Augustine, he's talking about St. Augustine, the early church father, often puts this text to skillful use in contending against the Pelagians that whatever excellence there is in men is not implanted by nature, so that it can be attributed to nature or heredity, nor is it procured of our own free will so as to put God under our control, but it flows from his mercy, which is pure and free. For there is no doubt that here Paul places the grace of God over against the worthiness of men. So Paul here is highlighting to them and saying, listen, the only, whatever you have is pure gift from God. It's not because you're better than anybody else. So we have no reason to boast, right? We have no reason to boast. No one can boast that uh, in their intelligence and in their abilities and their moral abilities. Paul is saying this, everything that we get is a gift from heaven. Remember John the Baptist said that um, a man cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from above. That's in John chapter three, the latter half. And that's the same basic thing that Paul is saying here. Everything we get comes from God's mercy. So none of us can boast as if we ourselves did this. Paul continues uh, in Calvin's commentary here. What hast thou? What, what do you have? Uh, Calvin writes, this bears out what is said in the previous phrase. For the man who has nothing that can mark him out as superior to others can have no right to set himself above them. For what is more futile than boasting without any justification for it? But no man has anything in his own resources to make him superior, 
Therefore, whoever who whoever puts himself on a higher level is foolish and impertinent. The true basis of Christian humility is, on the one hand, not to be self-satisfied, for we know that we have no good in ourselves at all, and on the other hand, if God has implanted any good in us, to be, for that reason, all the more indebted to his grace. In a word, we must not boast in anything, as Cyprian says, because we possess nothing. Again, Paul is calling them back. Listen, um, who has made you to do, what do you have that you did not receive? Um, you, you, everything you've been given, you've been given as a gift. You never were able strong enough or smarter than other people. So stop boasting, stop being so puffed up and thinking that you're so special. And lastly here where Calvin, uh, he's commenting on this verse. If then, um, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Uh, Calvin says this, note that no room is left for taking pride in ourselves when it is by the grace of God, we are what we are. And that is what we had in the first chapter, that Christ is the source of all our blessings so that we may learn to glory in the Lord. And we do not do that until we give up our own glory. And God only gets what is his right when we have been emptied so that it may be plain that anything commendable in us comes from outside ourselves. That's a very good reminder to us. We, we find everything we need in Jesus Christ. As Paul says, he has made to us wisdom, redemption, righteousness, and sanctification. He is everything to us. Therefore, we get everything from him. And therefore, we have to empty ourselves. We have to give up on our own glory and look to his glory alone and to see him for who he is. And we get everything. So we are emptied, but we are filled then with Christ. Okay, so Paul is continuing to humble, call them back to humility and to remind them of the greatness of the things that they've been given in Jesus Christ. Now, I want to turn, we go through chapter 5, and then one more thing now I want to read here from chapter 6, and this is based on verse 11 here, where Paul is saying and, and calling them uh, and telling them, he starts in verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And eventually he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed you are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So, let's read some stuff from here. Um, what, what does that mean that we were washed, that we were sanctified, that we were justified? Uh, Calvin writes this about verse 11. Um, let me see here. Where do I want to begin? Oh... Well, let's start at the beginning here. Some make this refer to a part only. Some of you were like that because in the Greek, the word some is added. But I think that it is more likely that the apostle is speaking of them all. Indeed, I am of the opinion that that word is superfluous in view of the usual practice of the Greeks, who often make use of it for the sake of ornament, but not as a term of limitation. However, we must not understand him to mean that all are wrapped up in the same bundle as if he attributes all these vices to each and every one, to each one of them, but he only wishes to point out that no one is free from these evil things until he has been born again by the Spirit. For we must hold that human nature, speaking universally, contains the seed of all evils, but that some vices predominate and make themselves evident in some men as the Lord brings the depravity of the flesh to view by its fruits. So, Remember, he's saying, such were some of you. 
And what he's highlighting is all of us have that same evil heart. All of us, we don't all struggle with the same exact sins, but we have the same sickness, if you will. So, you know what I mean? So we all have that same unbelieving, sinful, wicked heart. And for you, it might manifest itself in a specific sin in your life in a way that doesn't, that my heart manifests itself in a different sin. Um, yours may be anger, mine may be covetousness, or there could be lying or stealing or whatever sins it they are. Because there is some people struggle with different types of sins. But the key thing that Paul here is saying is underneath it all, though, we all have the same sinful nature, the same hearts, the same uh, seeds of all evil come from our hearts. Um, and so he's highlighting the the unity and the sense in which we all share in the same depravity. Uh, Calvin continues, thus in the first chapter of Romans, Paul lists many kinds of vices and crimes which spring from ignorance of God and that ingratitude of which he had shown all unbelievers to be guilty. Not that every single unbeliever is tainted with all those vices, but because all are exposed to them and no one is free of every one of them. For a man who is not an idolater sins in some other way. So also in the third chapter, he makes these texts refer to all the sons of Adam. Their throat is an open sepulcher. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their tongue is deceitful and poisonous. It is not the case that all are bloodthirsty and cruel, that all are treacherous or abusive in speech. Rather, before they are made new men by God, one has a tendency to cruelty, another to treachery, this one to lust, and that one to deceitfulness. The upshot is that there is no one in whom there is not some evidence of the corruption common to all. Indeed, all of us, to a man, are by an inward secret bias of the mind, subject to all vices, except insofar as the Lord puts a curb on them within us, so that they do not issue into the world in action. The meaning, therefore, is simply this. Before they had received the grace of regeneration, some of the Corinthians were covetous, others idolaters, others extortioners, others effeminate, others revilers. But now having truly been set free by Christ, they were like that no longer. So all of us, even though we may not have manifested in all of these specific ways, we all have the same evil heart. And it is only by the Holy Spirit's power that we are able to put those things to death. And so here um, he says this, however, the apostles attention is to intention is to humble them by reminding them of what they were like before, then to awaken them to realization of the grace of God towards them. For the more we recognize the wretchedness of the condition from which the kindness of the Lord has rescued us, the more clearly do we see the rich fullness of his grace. Now the extolling of grace is a source of encouragement because we ought to take great pains not to make the kindness of God worthless when it should be held in such high esteem. It is as if he said, it is enough that God has pulled you out of that mud in which you had been once been immersed. Peter speaks in similar terms. The time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles like to do. 1 Peter 4, 3. So he's saying, listen, do you not know who you are? Remember what you once were before you came to Christ. Remember the sins that you engaged in. Remember your dead heart before you came to Christ. But now, what does he say? But you were washed. Such were some of you. And whenever people come into our church, 
we should be reminded and they come as, you know, they're unbelievers or whatever. And when we look at the outside world, we should always be reminded such were some of us, such was I, such were some of you. Um, whenever we look at the world, we need to be reminded that we share, the, we, we had the same problem. We've just been given the gracious grace of God um, in Christ our Lord to change us. And, but he says, but you have been washed. And here's Calvin's commentary here. Paul uses three expressions to convey the one idea so as to be more effective in preventing them from falling back again into the condition from which they had extricated themselves. Although these three phrases all refer, therefore, to the same thing, their very variety, nevertheless, gives a great deal of force to what he says. For there are implied contrasts between washing and unclean things, sanctification and contamination, justification and guilt. His point is that once they have been justified, they must not bring themselves into a new state of guilt. Having been sanctified, they must not bring, make themselves unclean again. Having been washed, they must not solely themselves for, with fresh filth. Rather, they are to strive after purity, to continue in true holiness, to detest the filthy things of their former life. And from this we infer the purpose for which God reconciles us to himself by the free remission of sins. So he's calling us back to be reminded that we were washed by the Holy Spirit. Christ came and changed us and, and sanctified us so that we could once again be made new. So he's saying, listen, remember what happened to you in Christ. Don't go back to that life. You've been made clean now in Christ's blood. You've been made clean by the Holy Spirit's presence. Why would you go back to those kinds of sins? You need to know and flee these things and embrace the purity that is found in Christ Jesus. Come back to Christ is what he's saying. Lastly, he turns now, and I want to look here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, because he moves then into... Uh, marriage and these concerns that people had with marriage. And then he begins in verse 17 um, to talk about the whole idea of how we should lead our life in our callings. He says this, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So let's look real quick at this. And this will be the last reading that we'll do uh, today on the uh, podcast. Uh, So about verse 17, Calvin says this. He says, the meaning is the only solution is for each one to lead a life according to the grace given to him and appropriate to his calling. Let everyone therefore take pains about this and try with all his might to serve his neighbors, especially so when he ought to be urged on to such action by the particular function to which he has been called. Paul mentions two things, calling and measure of grace. And he charges us to pay attention to them in considering this matter. For it ought to be a great stimulus to us, spurring us on to service, that God counts us worthy of being appointed servants of his grace for the salvation of our brothers. On the other hand, our calling ought to keep us, as it were, under God's yoke, even if a man finds himself in rather unpleasant circumstances. So what he's saying here is that God, wherever God has placed you in your calling in life, You need to stay there and love your neighbor. This is a great doctrine called the doctrine of vocation. We had a class on it called God at Work. Um, And um, there's a lot we could talk about it here, but he's saying, listen, whatever position God's placed you, whatever, whether that be as a a man or a woman, a father, a mother, or a husband, a wife, 
um, son, daughter, uh, church member, pastor uh, in the state, you know, a citizen or a, or a, a magistrate or a, somebody in political office, whatever that looks like, job, employee, employer, in all of those things, we need to um, lead the life that God has given to us appropriate to our calling, where God's put us. Stay, be content with where God's put you, we could put it that way. But then going on into verse 18, where Paul says, was any man called being circumcised? Let him not become circumcised. Uh, Calvin continues and says, since he had been referring to calling, Paul takes the opportunity, as he often does, to make a short digression from a particular aspect to a general exhortation about calling. At the same time, he confirms with different examples what he had said about marriage. What it comes to is this. Once you have entered on your calling by God's will, you must not rashly withdraw from it because of external circumstances. He begins with circumcision, for it was a subject of dispute with many at that time. But he says that it makes no difference to God whether you are Gentile or Jew. And so he urges each person to be content with his own lot. We must always remember that Paul is dealing only with legitimate ways of life, which God has instituted and controlled. So again, God has called you and me as believers to be content where he has placed us. And he always points out, Calvin does the good helpful there. He's only dealing with legitimate ways of life. So for instance, it is not a legitimate calling to be a a drug dealer, right? That is not a legitimate calling in life. So if you are, if, if someone was engaged in that, Paul would not say, remain there, stay there. No, you need to repent of that, leave that lifestyle. That is an occupation, but that is not a calling. That may be a way for you to make cash, but it's not a legitimate calling in God's sight. And there are obvious other examples of that that we could think of. Um, but Paul here is calling us. If we are engaged in a legitimate calling in our job or, you know, um, if you are married or if you've got children or if you go to a church, whatever it is, Paul is saying, listen, stay where you're at unless the circumstances are obvious that you should move along. Like, for instance, Paul will say later here, you know, if you're a slave and you have the opportunity to become free and the opportunity comes along, certainly take that chance. But don't be going around and, you know, just fretting over much about trying to become free. He's basically saying, listen, be content where God's placed you and serve him where you're at. Calvin uh, continues here, um, and he's, he talks about um, circumcision, about circumcision being uh, nothing. He calls us and says, listen, we are, you know, the only thing that matters is keeping the commandments of God. So Calvin goes into verse 20. And he talks about, um, let each of us abide in that calling. He says this, this is the principle from which other things follow. Each should be content with his calling and persist in it and not be eager to change to something else. In the scriptures, calling is a lawful way of life for it is connected with God who actually calls us. That is pointed out to prevent anyone from misinterpreting this verse to give support to ways of life, which are clearly worldly and sinful. So again, Calvin's giving that caveat, right? Obviously, if you're engaged in obvious sin, yes, you should leave that lifestyle or that that uh, whatever you would call occupation or whatever. But a calling is for a lawful ways of life where God's put you. Don't leave that hastily, rashly. 
Calvin says this, continuing, but at this point, someone is asking if Paul wishes to impose something binding on people. For what he says may seem to suggest that each one is tied to his calling and must not give it up, but it would be asking far too much. If a tailor were not permitted to learn another trade or a merchant to change to farming, right? So this is a great question. So are you saying that I shouldn't ever be worried about switching my job? You know, if I, if I want to, you know, find a different career or do something different with my life, is that wrong? What, how should I think about that? And Calvin here, um, uh, says this to that I would reply that it, that is not the apostle's intention for he only wishes to correct the thoughtless eagerness which impels some to change their situation without any proper reason for perhaps they are moved by a wrong belief or some other influence in the next verse Paul brings this rule before everyone also that they may bear in mind In the next verse, Paul brings this rule before everyone also, that they may bear in mind what is more appropriate for their calling. Therefore, he does not lay it down that each person must remain in a certain way of life once he has adopted it. But on the other hand, he condemns the restlessness which prevents individuals from remaining contentedly as they are. And his advice is, let the shoemaker stick to his, to his last, as the old proverb has it. So, The key here is contentment, isn't it? Contentment in wherever the Lord has placed you. And this can be so important for us in our Christian lives. We live in a very discontent society, don't we? We live in a society where no one's content because no matter where you go, you're never going to find a perfect place, a perfect marriage, a perfect job, a perfect family, a perfect church, a perfect place to live, a perfect amount of money, a perfect house, And we live in a society which is seeking perfection. And so we have people doing things rashly, discontent all the time. It's not wrong to change your job or to change your career or to move. Those things are not wrong. The thing is, are you doing it because you're discontent all the time? Are you rashly? Are the reasons not really good? Um, You know, as Calvin says, it's thoughtless eagerness that impels you. Is that what's going on? Or are you doing this because of other good reasons, right? So really we have to judge in our hearts, these things. And, um, and this is, this is really, really important. I think, um, you know, that, that we need to be remembered. Do we need to be, we need to be remembered. We need to remember this, um, you know, that, that we want to be content where the Lord has placed us. The Lord is in control of our lives. And it's good. And Paul wants to remind them of that great truth in Corinth. And he wants to remind us of that as well, that wherever the Lord has placed us, he can use us. We were bought with a price. We are his. And he has a place for us. And we may not understand that place or that purpose. It may feel to us insignificant or ordinary. But the reality is if if God has placed us there, he's going to use us for his purposes to take care of the world and also to bless our families, our neighbors, and for the salvation of souls. Well, thank you very much for listening to this. I hope this has been encouraging to you as we walk through 1 Corinthians um, together. Um, We're going to next week begin in chapter 8. Should be fun. Thank you for listening. Take care, and God bless.